Blessed assurance. Even hearing Jasmine tell the story of her testimony, the assurance that she has who Jesus is and what he's done for her, what a joy. How many of you know that song we just sang? Wow, a lot of you. It's a good one, isn't it? Well, do you know who wrote that song? Fanny Crosby, way to go. Yeah, we got one hymnologist in here. (laughs) Fanny Crosby was a remarkable woman. She's most well-known. She wrote over 9,000 hymns. Can you imagine writing that many hymns? In fact, many of them we still sing today. She was born healthy but lost her sight at an early age. Think about that. For those of us with sight, it is truly difficult for us to comprehend a world without light. Imagine living in perpetual darkness, let alone trying to learn how to move and live in a big and dangerous world without the ability to see. Anybody ever walked into a dark room and the light switch is on the other side of the room? And you're thinking, if this is not the biggest uh, oversight in the solar system... Who puts the light switch on the other side? And you're like, well, but my iPhone's in the other room. I'm too busy. I don't have time to go get a flashlight. I can make it. Two minutes later in a broken lamp, you have all the bruises to show. No, you couldn't make it. You and I would tend to think that Crosby's greatest need in this life would be to have her physical vision restored so that she could live a truly productive and healthy life. Crosby did incredible things for God, not in spite of her blindness, but according to her own words, because of her blindness. You see, Crosby didn't just love poetry. She didn't just love writing songs. Fanny Crosby loved Christ, and she loved the Word of God. In fact, it was said that she would memorize up to five chapters a week I have a hard time memorizing one verse a week, let alone five chapters a week. What some would call a disability proved to be an opportunity for Crosby to hide the word of God in her heart, really providing the theological foundation for all of the songs that she would write for the rest of her life. And like many people who wrote hymns, they weren't really used when she was alive. When are they being sung? Now, blessing generations of Christians. One of my favorite quotes took place when one well-meaning preacher said this to Crosby. Think about this, well-meaning preacher saying this to a blind girl. I think it is a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. Crosby's response is amazing. I would have slapped that guy She says this, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind? Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. And it is this kind of fervent faith 
and hope in Christ that led her to pen these words. Maybe they sound familiar to you. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. In another verse, she said, perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my when? Changes, doesn't it, when you find out she was blind? She's talking about someday she's going to see what? Heaven in Christ. You know, I believe that God used blindness as a means of giving Crosby time to think without visual distractions. See, she was able to develop an inner spiritual life, a contemplative spirit that led her to see Christ with clarity and conviction. And as Crosby memorized and meditated on the word of God, you know what it did? It gave her a high and holy and exalted view of Christ, which gave her hope, gave her purpose, it gave her direction until the day she died in 1915. That was the day that her hope became reality. Her heart was filled with joy as instantly she was brought face to face with whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. The first face that she saw was Jesus. What an encounter with Christ that must have been. Someday I hope to get to heaven and ask her about it. Well, tonight our next encounter with Christ is the story of another person who, though blind, came face to face with Jesus Christ. And just like Fanny Crosby, He saw Christ for who he was. So please turn with me to Mark 10, 46, where we meet a blind, destitute beggar. Mark 10, 46. Now, as you're turning there, let me give us just a little bit of context. The gospel of Mark portrays Christ as the suffering servant. Most commentators agree that the key verse that summarizes the whole book of Mark is found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. In fact, as you're turning to Mark 10, 46, the beginning of our story, just look at this verse with me. This is the key verse for this book. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christ is the servant, Savior, King. He came to serve. He came to sacrifice to give his life for ours, why? So that we might have life. His death, our life. What did we just sing about? No matter how much my sin is, his mercy is more. Who is he? The Lamb of God who's able to what? Take away the sins of the world. His blood, his death, so I could have life. That's what Mark 10, 45 is all about. And think about what prompted him to say this. In the verses right before this, James and John come before him and ask him a question. Hey, Lord, grant us this request. 
One of us wants to sit on your right. One of us wants to sit on your left. The disciples hear it in verse 21, and they start getting angry. They're fighting over who gets to be first. Who gets to sit at Jesus' side? Why? Because they thought they deserved greatness. And what does Jesus remind them? How do you achieve greatness? Through service and sacrifice. The first shall be last. The disciples needed a heart change, and Christ is going to provide them with a physical illustration of what it means to sacrificially serve as he encounters this blind beggar. And I love this. I think these two stories are really balanced on the pivot of this key verse, Mark 10, 45. It's a contrast for us. Here we have the disciples. Guess what? The sighted are blind. But then over here with this beggar, what do we find? The blind are sighted. What a contrast. And while this blind beggar came to Jesus in perpetual darkness, we will see tonight what happens when he encounters the light of the world and Christ brings his power to bear on his greatest need. So tonight, our close encounter with Christ can be broken up into four sections. This evening, we're going to see four sections. First of all, we're going to see the cry. Then we're going to see the call. Then we're going to see the consequence And then we're going to see the commitment, the cry, the call, the consequence, and the commitment. So let's begin by looking at the cry. And don't worry, we're going to spend most of our time tonight on this first point. When we finish this point, you're like, how is he going to finish in time? We want to play volleyball. Don't worry. It's by design. The cry. Let's read Mark 10, starting in verse 46. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Mark begins this story by Setting, giving us the setting. Notice what it says. Then they came to Jericho. Well, who's the they? Well, we see it's Jesus, his disciples, and this large crowd. Well, who is this large crowd? These are the pilgrims, numerous pilgrims, all making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And as they're coming down from Galilee, they have to travel right through Jericho on their way south before the final ascent up into Jerusalem. That's who this they is. And notice it says, and as he was leaving Jericho. Now it's interesting to note, there are two Jerichos. There is an Old Testament city of Jericho, which was in ruins, remember what happened to that city, as well as this New Testament city of Jericho. This event probably took place somewhere between these two cities as they were leaving the Old Testament ruins, which is what both Mark and Matthew record as they were leaving Jericho, and on the road as they were entering the new city, New Testament city of Jericho, which is why Luke 18 says as they were arriving. Matthew and Mark say they were leaving. The other one says they're arriving. It's because they're in between the Old Testament ruined city 
in the New Testament city. Notice what it says. With his disciples in a large crowd. How big was this crowd? This, this word large in the Greek can, can be translated considerable. It was an adjective that was, was used to describe numbers. Again, since this is near the end of Christ's public ministry, undoubtedly many had heard of Jesus. Is this the guy that fed all those people with fish and bread? Is this the guy that, that did these miracles and raised the dead and gave sight to the blind and cast out demons? They had heard of Jesus. They wanted to see him. So this crowd is not only the residents of Jericho, but also all of these pilgrims coming. They were drawn to Jesus. And in the midst of this huge crowd, this mass of people, who do they encounter? What does it say? A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Now, we don't know much about blind Bart, other than that he was the son of Timaeus. You're like, well, how do you know that? This is an Aramaic word. Bar is the son of. Timaeus is what? It's the name of his father. So my dad's name is Arper. I'm so glad he named me Chris. He's been explaining his name all his life. It's like Harper without the H, right, Dad? So, Thank you. So what would you call me? Oh, it's Chris, son of Arper. That's what this is, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. And here he is, a poor, blind, destitute beggar. Where? On the side of the road. Which, sadly, was a very common sight in Jesus' day. And The life of the blind, like many with disabilities in those days, were both despised and reduced to begging. It was a hard life, and you didn't have a lot of hope. Now, think about this. Think about all of the medical advances and, and programs that we have for those with medical issues or, or, or any kind of special needs. We have tons. In fact, when we were in Thessaloniki in Greece getting my, my daughter eye care, I watched a Greek daughter, doctor take a needle and walk up to a man who was sitting in the waiting room with me and say, hold still. And he took that needle, and what do you think the eye doctor did with the needle? Stuck it into this guy's eye and injected the medicine in it. And I'm watching, horrified. I'm like, turn away. I can't. I was like, dude, hold still. Don't move. It's like this needle. Ah, it hurts. I think I have eye needle phobia. I think it's a thing. But think about that. This is medical advantages that we have here where you can stick a needle in someone's eye to put the medicine exactly where you need it to heal that man's macular degeneration. I found out later that's what it was. I'm like, are they going to have to do that to Whitney? They did. The only difference is they put her under with anesthesia. So she was really still. And I was not in the room. <laughs> I, I get the willies just thinking about it. Think about this. Back then, a blind beggar couldn't rely on the government. You couldn't rely on the local hospital. You couldn't go to the eye clinic that did charity work. 
Blind Bart would sit on the side of that road all day, every day, and beg for food and for money. He was totally dependent upon the charity of those passing by, and it was a brutal life. I mean, I imagine homeless Bartimaeus that morning probably woke up from wherever he could find shelter, probably shivering from the wind. He shook the straw from his shabby, torn garments and began tapping his way along the streets to the city gates. He took his place, the place he sat every day with all the other beggars lined up. He was probably hungry. He was probably tired from sleeping outdoors. And as the city began to come to life, he began to sound out his beggar's cry. Pity for the blind. Sir, can you spare a crust of bread? Do you have a penny to spare? Pity, sir, pity. Every day, all day. Then in verse 47, he finds out Jesus, the Nazarene, was about to pass by. I can imagine him saying, hearing the crowd coming down the road and saying, who is it? Who is it? Someone says, it's Jesus, the Nazarene. Now, this term, Jesus the Nazarene, was a common name that they called Jesus back then, associating him with his hometown of Nazareth. I can imagine someone saying, hey, which Jesus is this? Is this like the Jesus from Capernaum? They're like, no, 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 not that one. It's the Jesus of Nazarene, he, of Nazareth. He's the Nazarene. Oh, yeah, it's that Jesus. It's nothing special. And what does he do? When he heard this, that Jesus the Nazarene was coming, what did he do? He began to cry out, literally to shout with a loud voice. In fact, sometimes this word can mean scream. It's like a father who loses his daughter in a crowded department store. Have you ever seen a parent? Anyone ever lost their child that wants to admit it publicly? Yeah, it is terrifying. It's like a father who loses his daughter in a crowded department store, frantically tries to find her, and then from across the crowded store, he sees her walking toward the front door. Sarah! She doesn't hear. Sarah! She keeps walking. Sarah! Each time getting what? Louder and louder. Sarah goes and is like, why does he keep calling me? I'm right here. What do you think all the people around him did in that department store? Dude, relax. She's right over there. You're overreacting. But no matter what those around him said, he continued crying out all the more. In fact, let's examine three characteristics of Bartimaeus' cry for mercy. As we're looking at the cry, here are three key characteristics. Number one, he properly perceived his problem. He properly perceived his problem. What did blind Bart know? He was, yeah, good job, paying attention. He couldn't see. He never got to see any gorgeous sunsets like the ones that we have here in Texas where God literally paints the sky with hues of blue and pink and orange and red. Anyone seen one of those recently? And you're like, wow, you just stop and look at it. He never got to see that. never got to see the face of his mother or his loved ones. 
He knew he was blind. But unlike so many today who have 20-20 vision, but live in perpetual spiritual darkness, he knew what his most pressing problem actually was. You see, he didn't merely focus on his difficult physical circumstances. What are they? He's blind and he's penniless. He didn't just focus on that. He focused on his spiritual condition. He was a sinner desperately in need of a savior. Now, how do we know this is true? Because what does he cry out for? Mercy! Why do you cry out for mercy? What is mercy? Getting what you don't deserve. There, you deserve this, and you get the opposite. Not getting what you deserve. He cries out for mercy. He's profoundly aware of his plight, and he reached out to the only one who could help him. Not only did he properly perceive his real problem, but he saw the solution. He perceived the problem. He saw the solution. What did he repeat over and over again? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And you can just picture Jesus starting to walk by and he hears, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus moves along and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's crying out. Notice who he did not cry out for. Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't cry out for that Jesus. He cried out for Christ, the son of David, who came to seek and save that which was lost, Luke 19, 7. Now you're thinking, well, what's the significance of that title? Son of David. Why is blind Bart crying out for Jesus, the son of David? Matthew 1, chapter 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who is Jesus? Jesus the Messiah. And who is Jesus the Messiah? The son of David. In fact, later on in Mark 12, 35, we see this Jesus himself, he calls himself the son of David. There in Luke 12, 35, Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And then later in Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, Jesus refers to himself as the root and the descendant of David. Why is that so important? John MacArthur clarifies why this title is so significant. I quote, according to 2 Samuel 7, the Messiah would be David's greater son, the heir to his throne. He would be the king who would bring the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham and David. Kyle talked about this last week. What was the covenant promise? That through the line of Abraham, the Messiah would come, and through him, not only Abraham and his people, the Jews, would be blessed, but who else? All the nations of the earth. That's who the son of David is, coming to fulfill that promise. And who is the Messiah? Christ. Jesus. Bartimaeus here is publicly acknowledging Jesus as Israel's Messiah. Now think about this. When Jesus told the Jews who he was, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. What did the Jews do? 
What did they pick up? Not fluffy teddy bears. What did they pick up? Stones. Why? Blasphemy. They were going to kill him. You can read about that. John 8, 59. John 10, 32. You see, Bartimaeus understood not only his great need, but he rightly understood who Jesus was. Helen Keller was, had an incredible response when someone once bluntly asked her this, isn't it terrible to be blind? I'm just saying blind people have to have a lot of patience with people. Isn't it terrible to be blind? You know what she said? Better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. Just like Fanny Crosby, I think Bartimaeus had a lot of time to sit there on that side of the road to think without all the visual distractions. He had time to contemplate his life, to see with his heart, and he came to believe all that he had heard about Jesus Christ. This wasn't just Jesus, the Nazarene. This was Jesus, the son of David. Jesus, the son of God, who is not only able to miraculously heal the lame, the sick, and the blind, but he is the Lamb of God, who was able to take away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. We just sang that, didn't we? That's who this is. This is the Lamb of God. Well, because he properly perceived his problem and because he saw his solution in Christ, this explains the third characteristic of his cry. He passionately persisted. He passionately persisted. Notice the crowd's response in verse 48. It says, many were sternly telling him to be quiet. How many people were telling him to be quiet? You don't have to know Greek to know the answer to this one. What does many mean? More than one, more than a few, more than a couple. They were repeatedly telling him to stop crying out. And notice, how were they telling him to be quiet? Sternly. Kids, do you like it when your parent gets stern with you? What does that mean? Yeah, it's not good, is it? They have this face and their eyebrows get all crunched up and they have this look. And they're like, what have I told you? You see the sternness? It's interesting, this word stern literally means to rebuke or to strongly admonish. I can imagine some saying, Bartimaeus, be quiet, you're making a scene. I'm trying to see Jesus, the Nazarene. Others probably were harsh. Shut up, beggar. As Christ began to walk by, it's as if the louder and more insistent that he cried out to Jesus for mercy, the louder and more insistent the crowd attempted to silence him. And isn't this a picture of the world today? The more that you and I cry out to Jesus, the more that we point others, cry out to Jesus, what does the world say? Shut up. I don't want to hear it. Be quiet. Stop talking. Or I'll make you stop talking. You realize there are countries in this world where if you talk about Jesus, you will die or be imprisoned. The world says you're beyond help. He doesn't hear you anyway. Bartimaeus passionately persisted to cry out, and so should we. 
Now think about this with me. If you're a blind beggar, where do you fit on the socially accepted list in Jericho? At the top? In the, uh, uh, how low do you go? In fact, there's probably only one ring that's below you. That's lepers. Like if you were a blind beggar, leper. Just when you think it can't get any worse. No, you could be a leper. Because at least he got to sit there on the road. Lepers had to like wear a bell and be away from everybody. But he was pretty, pretty far down on that rung. Marginalized on the side of the road. What would you expect him to do when the crowd tells him to be quiet? Who is he dependent on day in and day after for his sustenance? You don't want to make him angry because what will they stop doing? Pity for the blind. No, shut up. You didn't shut up the other day. I'm not going to give you anything. But he wasn't looking to them anymore. Who was he looking to? Jesus Christ. As God was surely drawing his heart and granting him faith to believe, he knew he didn't deserve anything but condemnation. And yet, what does he still cry out over and over and over again? Mercy. Mercy, Lord. Mercy to not receive what he truly deserved, which was what? Because of his sin. Hell. Eternal damnation separated from God. This urgent cry for mercy shows his acknowledgement that he was a sinner in need of a Savior. And so his heart and mind saw the light of God before his eyes ever did. You know, when it comes to my unbelieving family and my unbelieving friends that I can't save, this is what I pray for, that God would grant them a sense of urgency that in spite of the distractions, the discouragement of the world or the temptation of the world, that they would not only see that the wages of their sin is death, but that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.23. I pray for them that they would passionately, urgently cry out for mercy. Bartimaeus properly perceived his problem as a guilty sinner in need of mercy. He rightly saw the solution in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And he passionately persisted to cry out for mercy until he got the attention of Jesus Christ. That was the cry in verses 46 to 48. Now let's examine the second section of his encounter with Christ, the call. Let's look at the call in verse 49. Notice, and Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up. He's calling for you. Now, don't forget, where is Jesus headed? Not to Disneyland. Where is he going? To celebrate his last Passover. He's going to Jerusalem to what? To be crucified. He's going to live, Mark 10.45, to become the ransom for the many. Jericho was only about six hours away from Jerusalem, about 18 miles away. This stop in Jericho is literally the last stop before his final stop in Jerusalem. 
He was a man on a mission. And yet, the son of David stood still. What was Jesus doing? Stopping along the road, calling for this blind beggar to be brought to him. Again, remember the context. Christ was modeling Mark 10, 45 to the watching disciples. With his eyes fixed on Calvary to do what his heavenly father sent him to do, you would have thought he didn't have time for this poor, pitiful, blind beggar. But here Jesus demonstrates something incredibly beautiful. His willingness to offer sacrificial service to one in need. Imagine this huge crowd moving, following Jesus on their way to Jerusalem, and they come to a stop. You ever do that when you're marching in class or something, kids, and like someone stops in front, and you're like, I can just imagine the whole crowd coming to a stop. Hey, who's stopping the bus? The scene develops between the king of kings and this lowly, destitute beggar. You know, sometimes it feels like God doesn't hear us. Maybe he's too busy on his way to help someone else. Maybe we think God's too holy to consider helping such a sinful mess like me, like you. But don't miss this. God is instantly attentive to our cry. Even when a million beggars cry out to him at once, he hears us through the throng of the crowd, all of the noise He hears Bartimaeus. Psalm 34, verses 17 to 18 says this, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. What does it mean to be brokenhearted, to be crushed in spirit, to be humble before a holy God in repentance? And when you come to God that way, what does the psalm say? He will hear you. He will deliver you out of all of your troubles. What about Psalm 145, 19? Psalm 145, 19 says, he will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The humble heart's cry of one who is in need is far sweeter to God than all of the shallow hallelujahs of the crowd. Tonight, do you feel helpless? You feel hopeless? Are you hurting? Are you overwhelmed by your difficult circumstances? The weight of your sin? Do you feel marginalized? Do you feel cast to the side like no one cares? You're talking and no one hears you? God will always hear the cry for mercy from those who humbly come to him. Amen? Always. Jesus hears. He stops. And what does he say? Call him here. Obviously, the Lord's response changed the attitude of the crowd toward Bartimaeus, at least temporarily, at least in Jesus' presence. Does he know this blind beggar? Notice how they respond. So they called the blind man. What do they say? They say, don't be afraid. Cheer up. 
Be courageous. Get up on your feet. He's calling you. The crowd had it right. Christ calls us in order to comfort, to cheer, and in this case, to heal and to restore. So let me ask you tonight. When you hear the call of Christ in your life, how will you respond? Well, let's look and see the resulting consequence of Christ's call. We saw the cry. We saw the call. Now let's look at the consequence, specifically the consequence of Christ's call. Notice what happens in verse 50. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Boy, he's not excited at all, is he? Just like after a long day at school, kids, what do you look for most besides snack time? Besides going home? What do you look forward to, kids? P-E. Right? And you find out it, you don't look very excited right now. You're like, I can't wait to get out of here and go run around. P.E. See, when you hear it's time to leave, kids, what will happen? Jump up out of your seat and go run around. And your parents are like, I hope they get tired out so they go to bed. Acting in eager faith without doubt or hesitation, what does he do? He reacts. When? Immediately to Christ's call. Notice what he does. Throwing aside his cloak for a blind beggar who didn't have much. And what you did have, you carried with you. You didn't treat your cloak carelessly, even if it was a moth-eaten, greasy, unwashed cloak. I mean, think about it. That was his blanket. It was his sleeping bag. It was his raincoat. It was, every, it was his hoodie. It was everything. Notice he throws it aside, almost as if he doesn't want anything to hinder or slow him down in his efforts to reach Jesus. Isn't this the way it should be? Whatever we might cling to, whatever might trip us up or slow us down is tossed to the side as we run to Jesus. He jumps up, indicating a joyful eagerness and obediently comes to Christ. I can almost picture it in a crowd that size. He was probably, again, what is he? He can't see. I can almost picture the crowd kind of helping him along. Till he came face to face with Jesus. The all seeing eyes of Jesus looking intently at the sightless sockets of Bartimaeus' eyes, heart pounding, expectantly waiting for what Jesus, the son of David, would say. And now we come to the fourth section. We've seen the cry, we've seen the call, we've seen the conclusion, and now we see the what? The commitment. The commitment. Look what happens in verse 51. In answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Notice Jesus' response to his cry for mercy. Uh, What do you want me to do for you? At first glance, does it seem this response is a bit unnecessary? 
Kind of like the woman who walks into an ER with a uh, nail in her forehead. You may have heard this one. The nurse at the front desk asks, uh, what seems to be the problem? She says, ah, I've been having a lot of headaches lately and my sweaters are getting all snagged. I just can't seem to concentrate, stay focused, and I just seem irritable all the time. The nurse says, well, how long have you been having these problems? Well, ever since I got this nail in my forehead. What's the obvious conclusion? It might be about the nail. Ladies, it is about the nail. For those of you that have seen that. Why does Jesus ask a blind beggar this seemingly obvious question? Well, first of all, Jesus wanted to hear him communicate his desire. To communicate evidence of his faith that he believed Christ could heal him and that Christ could save him. What's interesting is that this is the same exact question that Jesus asks James and John in verse 36. Look there. James and John come in verse 35. They come up, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And what does Jesus say? What do you want me to do for you? What is he getting them to articulate? This is what we want. This is our heart's desire. This is what we, what? Deserve. Jesus asks this question. Bartimaeus has a radically different answer. Second, this question demonstrates the heart of Christ is a sacrificial servant. Again, think about it. Christ, the high king of heaven, is offering to serve a debased, lowly, socially outcast, smelly, blind beggar, and unworthy sinner. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. This was an extremely different attitude than what James and John had demonstrated earlier. They were thinking of themselves first. Who is Christ thinking of here? Blind Bart. The needs of others. That's what Philippians 2, 3, and 4 calls us to. Do nothing from selfish ambition for empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for what? Your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And notice how Bartimaeus responds to this question in verse 51. Notice what he says. Answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. Rabboni literally means my master. And this was an expression of personal faith as he placed himself in submission to Jesus as his sovereign king. That's why you call someone Master, unlike James and John who thought they deserved to be elevated, he knew what he really deserved. He sought only mercy even though he knew he didn't deserve it. In fact, in Matthew's account in Matthew 20, verse 34, we are told that Jesus moved with compassion, touched the eyes, and immediately they regained their sight. And just like Fanny Crosby First face that blind Bart saw was who? His Lord and Savior, his master, Jesus Christ. 
Can you imagine what that would have been like? That's what the son of David looks like. What were blind, sightless sockets could now miraculously see like that. The power of God through Christ as the son of God. And the blind man sees. Here in Mark, Jesus says, go, your faith has made you well. Literally, the literal translation of this in the Greek is go, your faith has saved you. Because here Jesus uses a Greek verb for salvation. It's the Greek verb sozo. He doesn't use the Greek word for healed. I think this is done intentionally by Jesus to show that not only did Jesus miraculously heal his blindness, but because of his faith in Christ, he had also received eternal salvation. What is this faith? Faith that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God come from heaven to earth. Faith that Jesus would do what he said he came to do, die, and three days later what? Be raised again to show he had power over death and that God accepted his sacrifice in our place. He believed that Jesus would rescue sinners from hell by dying in their place and resurrecting that third day. How do we know this? Well, what does he do the moment he is miraculously healed? Ah, oh, thanks, Jesus, for that sweet healing. I'll be on my way to live my best life. I should write a book on that. Isn't it amazing how some people profess to, perceive, to receive Christ? And it's almost like, okay, I got that, that get a hell free card. And then what do they do with the rest of their life? Live for themselves. Not blind Bart. What does he do? Notice what it says. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. What would cause him to do that? If you've been blind all your life and Jesus miraculously heals you and saves you from your sin, what would you be filled with? Gratitude, amazement, wonder that Jesus would do that for me. A lowly beggar. Blind Bart wanted to be near his Savior. So he said, Jesus, where you go, what? I go. Think about this. He was once on the side of the road. Now where is he? He's on the road following Christ. He was once a bystander. Now what is he? A committed disciple of Jesus. What an amazing thought. In fact, Luke records in chapter 1843, it says, immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they give praise to God. Hallelujah. Not only does true saving faith result in an act of turning from sin and self to follow Christ, but what does it result in? Joy. God-glorifying response resulting in praise. Christ did not just exercise divine power to give sight to the blind. He opened the eyes of Bartimaeus' heart to see his greatest need, which was what? A sinner in need of a savior. He jumps up, indicating a joyful eagerness 
and obediently comes to follow Christ. What an amazing thought. Such a beautiful illustration of the way of salvation. In fact, I love what Psalm 50 verse 15 says. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. To honor the Lord is to glorify him, to praise him for the merciful gift of salvation that can only come to those who, like Bartimaeus, are willing to first perceive their problem as a guilty sinner in need of mercy, to secondly, rightly see the solution in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and thirdly, to passionately persist to cry out to Christ for mercy, not in good works, not in externally following some religion, not in baptism, not in any other thing or any other person, but to passionately, persistently cry out for Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me. Tonight, if you are not a committed follower of Jesus Christ, your greatest need tonight is to cry out for mercy just like Bartimaeus did just like Fanny Crosby did. They each had an encounter with Christ. They each came face to face with their Lord and Savior. And just like Bartimaeus, if you humble yourself in repentance for your sin, if you trust in Christ alone as your Savior, if you cry out to God for mercy, he will hear you and he will grant you mercy. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this opportunity to study your word together for the clarity of this passage. Thank you that you sent Jesus not to serve himself. If that were true, we would be without hope. But you sent your son to serve us and to pay the ultimate sacrifice, his death, so that we might have life. What an amazing thought. No matter how great our sin, no matter how marginalized or bad or depressed we may feel, no matter how discouraged we are, no matter where we are in life, that because of your great love and the person and work of your son, we can find mercy and hope in you. And so, Lord God, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight that does not have the blessed assurance that they cannot say, Jesus is mine. Lord, that you would grant them that saving faith to believe in Jesus Christ. Would you do that, Lord, for your glory? And all God's people said, amen.